Hello, and welcome to the Christmas, Christmas special, special of Lots of Planets Have a North. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And today we are going to be looking at the David Tennant era Christmas specials. So this is, this is actually, interestingly enough, our first time looking at Tennant on this podcast. And I know we have some opinions collectively about the Tennant era, some of which actually sort of came up a little bit in our Series 1 episodes, uh, which you can go and check out if you haven't. In fact, I think some of the things we'll be talking about today will be uh, sort of prefigured in that episode, so that might be worth worth a look. And I think this actually makes a really good starting point for looking at Tennant, because I, I've realised from re-watching the Christmas specials that... In a weird way, they seem to be where the logic of the Tenant era is at its most apparent, is at its most blatant, which makes sense because it's a Christmas special. It's kind of, in its own way, kind of trying to sell the show to a wider audience because there's going to be people tuning in because it's Doctor Who, because it's Christmas time, who aren't at any other time of year. So it makes sense that the show is going slightly broader, maybe, in some way. I should say, actually, at this point... Uh, we're doing the Tenant Era Christmas specials. We are not doing the End of Time. On the basis that the End of Time, Time of the Doctor, and Twice Upon a Time are all, apart from all having the word time in their titles, which I genuinely did not realise until I came to list them like that. They're all slightly di- something slightly different, I think, from normal Christmas specials. Even the Christmas Invasion. Because they are more about like the death of that particular Doctor and about kind of rounding off that era. So I think they're doing something slightly different. And we will probably treat them all uh, together at some point in the future, I would think. I think we might as well jump in. Jump straight into the um, the Christmas invasion. Blood control was just one form of conquest. I could summon the Armada and take this world by force. Well, yeah, you could. Yeah, you could do that. Of course you could. But why? Look at these people. These human beings. Consider their potential. From the day they arrive on the planet and blinking step into the sun, there is more to see than can ever be seen. More to do than... No, hold on. Sorry, that's the Lion King. But the point still stands. I'll start us off with this one, actually. This Christmas Invasion is, I think, probably one of the... Not just one of the Tenant Year episodes, but one of the Doctor Who episodes that I've seen most. Because I think back... Around the time the time Tenant was on, anyway, around between 2006 and 2010, uh, which was kind of a peak for my time for my engagement with the show, this was just for some reason an episode that I kept coming back to. And I think maybe that's because at that time it crystallized some of what appealed to me about the show, and particularly about Tenant's portrayal of the character. Because he, he does the thing, he does the big sort of show-stoppy moment where he comes out of the TARDIS and does the big blustery speech. It's a very heroic portrayal of the Doctor in many ways, arguably up until the ending at least. And re-watching it for that reason, because my opinion of both the Tenth Doctor and his era have changed quite a bit since that time, I sort of wasn't quite sure what I would make of it. But I did enjoy it, I enjoyed it quite a bit, maybe more than I was expecting to. So, while I have my misgivings about it, which we will get onto, they're actually... A lot of them aren't necessarily to do with this episode, they're more to do with the way it fits into the broader fabric of the Tenth Doctor era, I think. 
yeah, so I like the Chris- I like the Christmas Invasion. I think it's still quite a positively thought of episode, even though the Christmas episodes tend to be like a bit less than spectacular across the board. I was wondering if either of you knew actually like how it came to be a thing that Doctor Who had Christmas specials because it's very much a new Who thing, mm. although not anymore. But like, it's it's very strange that it became such a part of the DNA of like the um, Davies and Moffat eras when mm. there's not really anything inherent in Doctor Who that screams Christmas. Mm. And I think it's pretty clear from particularly a comparison of Christmas Invasion and The Runaway Bride that uh, they ran out of ideas fairly quickly. <laughs> In some ways, yeah. I think I think the reason the, the Christmas specials came to be a thing is just the kind of the logic of television and of big television mm. at the time Doctor Who came back. Because Christmas specials became a big thing. I mean, it's not that they didn't exist in like the... Uh, well, certainly the 70s and 80s. But by the two, the time you get to the 2000s, they're almost an expected thing of a big show, especially a big show on the BBC. So you'll get your, your Downton Abbey Christmas specials, although that's a few years after this, and your, like, your Gavin and Stacey and stuff like that. Because they are, whether they are big shows in terms of budget uh, or anything, they are kind of tentpole shows in terms of audience. And so I think it's just one of the ways in which Doctor Who kind of changes its shape to contort into the um the landscape of television at that point yeah Mm. one thing i did notice that's a bit strange about like about um i think all of them apart from maybe the next doctor is that there's a lot of union jacks yeah i've got things to say about (laughs) that i feel like a lot more than in a normal episode set in contemporary i think you're right yeah london because well, Harriet Jones has a portrait of Richard III in oh, her yeah. office, which big approval on that. Like, I can't fault her on that decision. But there's also a lot of Union flags in her office. There's mm. some in just hanging up in the Unit HQ. Yeah. Which wasn't ever a thing in Old Who. Well, it couldn't really have been a thing because they were like they're, you know, they're an international force. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then in, I'm sure I can't remember where there are in Runaway Bride. I just think there are some. But then there's some in yeah. Wilfs. Like Booth in Voyage of the Damned. Yeah, and there's also the whole thing with the Queen, which oh, I'm yeah. sure we'll get on to. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not talking very much about Christmas Invasion in my like introduction to what I feel about that episode, but I think it's because I, I don't think that there's anything particularly bad about it. I think that it kind of sets the standard for Christmas episodes in a decent way. It's mm. just that then they don't really expand on that. And I think it's a nice introduction to the Tenth Doctor as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I also quite like the Christmas Invasion. I think it's like a solid episode. I don't think it's anything spectacular. Hmm. I think yeah, it does introduce Tennant well. You have mis- misgivings about him, and particularly about Christmas specials. Within the episode, you do get the uh, the sense of a lot of things beginning that I don't like about the Christmas specials. Um, specifically, the idea that all Christmas specials must be structured around Christmas and images of Christmas mm. at every mm. possible extent, to every uh, possible extent, and that the villains themselves should be in some way Christmassy. Um, <laughs> I think the Sycorax work fairly well. I have issues with them that I will get onto. 
but I think they largely work in terms of the way in which they look. They don't fall into that that issue, but but some of the things around them do, like the you know the the spinning Christmas tree and the the mm. robot Father Christmases. The Father Christmases aren't so bad at this point, but when they bring them back in the Roy Bride, it's kind of it creates a plot hole in retro, in like retroactively yeah. for yeah. the Christmas Invasion yeah. because I always assumed when we when I watched the Christmas Invasion and even this time mm. because I'd forgotten that they mm. come back that mm. the Father Christmases and Christmas trees are linked to the Sycorax, yeah. but mm. then it turns yeah. out that they're not. They're just some other kind of weird mm. thing that stalks the streets at Christmas time and is very. Yeah, canny with its disguises for some reason. It's it's hard to understand why exactly Russell T Davies, who is in many ways a great writer, head brimming full of ideas, looked back at the Christmas Invasion and thought, "Yeah, <laughs> that's the killer idea. That's mm. the one that needs to come back." Uh, I mean, to be fair, it doesn't come back a third time at least. And the Christmas but... tree comes back as oh, well. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also kind of weird because there's no reason why the Christmas tree would play Jingle Bells whilst it spins, because that's not a thing that Christmas trees do. Yeah. No. I don't understand. And I don't know. Like, if it had been a one-off, then it is kind of the Christmas tree in particular is kind of funny because of the just the yeah. reactions to it. Yeah. But yeah. then I think that it feels a bit, well, a lot lazy to bring it back. Yeah, and so yeah. this is, I guess this is kind of the thing that we were saying about how it's weird with the Christmas invasion because a lot of it is, like, all right now, but because mm. we know what's coming, it's yeah. like... But, oh, I did also make a note that um, the thing of him saving the world in his pyjamas has a bit of, like, spearhead from space when he starts in the hospital in the, like, oh, nightgown yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that there's some nods back to previous regenerations. Well, there. specifically, there's another one to the third Doctor in the fact that the Santa Brass Band are playing a Venusian lullaby that sounds like God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Oh, somewhere, somehow, Agador is snoozing. <laughs> <laughs> It's a bit weird that this episode's probably going to come out before our one about... Yeah, it is, actually. Um, before our episode about season 11, which has already been recorded, but hasn't been fully edited yet, and isn't as time-sensitive as this one. Tune in for a snoozy boy. Mm. See, that's the thing. I'm a doctor, but beyond that, I, I just don't know. I literally do not know who I am. It's all untested. Am I funny? Am I sarcastic? Sexy? Vital misery? Life and soul? Right-handed, left-handed, a gambler, a fighter, a coward, a traitor, a liar, a nervous wreck. I mean, judging by the evidence, I've certainly got a goal. Well, I think um, it might make sense to talk a bit about David Tennant specifically. Mm -hmm. Because obviously this is, not only is it his first episode, but it spends a lot of time building up to his proper entrance. Mm. Which comes a good two-thirds of the way through its runtime. I mean, he has had lines and stuff before that point. But it's made clear that that is him in a state where he is not quite himself. And even when he does make his appearance, it's it's very like, oh, what kind of doctor will I be? Is very much the the text of mm. his of his speech. Mm. Like I actually think this is probably maybe at the time, but certainly with hindsight, probably the most I like him in the role. Partly because there is that sense of him figuring it out as he goes. Which he does very, very well. Because David Tennant is a really good actor. There's a sense of him simultaneously making it his own. And yet, like in that first appearance where he's kind of 
walking around the sick rack ship and sort of talking as he goes and clearly kind of making stuff up as he goes. It's very it's very Troughton, it's very Tom Baker, that sense of kind of blustering his way around his opponents and kind of hoping to sort of talk his way around them. Uh, and also the kind of semi-comic nature of it. Uh, obviously, Hark's back as well. I mean, both of those are clearly big, particularly Tom Baker, are clearly very much in the background of the way Tennant plays the role anyway. But yeah, I, I don't know, like, does this look different now, knowing how the rest of the Tennant era plays out, knowing how his whole, um, his portrayal kind of evolves over those few years? There's certainly the the first indications of the kind of hubris that will come out Yeah. much further along the line, mm. you know, in terms of the way in which he brings down Harriet Jones and says, yes. I can bring you down with six words that kind of thing. So I think you can definitely see that in hindsight. I find it quite funny how they keep talking about Torchwood as if they're like a serious a serious military asset when actually they are to unit what like a stripper cop is to a a real cop. <laughs> well, it's weird in terms of timeline because Torchwood is like a whole big thing at this point mm. in the timeline mm. before Doomsday. After Doomsday it is basically Jack and his mates but before that, it is like a nationwide thing. Oh yeah. no, there's a sexy emergency. Somebody <laughs> called Torchwood. That's just what I keep thinking since we rewatched mm. it. But like um, Tennant, I would have I haven't actually rewatched his the rest of his run in quite a while. So in a way, this was kind of starting over for me as well. So I don't really know what I would say about if I feel differently about because I don't fully know if I feel differently about the rest of the Tenant era at this point. But I do think it's clever how they kind of play off the audience's anxieties about what a new Doctor is going to be like. Yeah, yeah. Because that's kind of Rose's journey and also Mickey and Jackie's journey as well. Hmm. Um, when 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 there is this whole section of the episode where we don't get very much of the Doctor at all... It is mm. about them negotiating their feelings about what's happened. Mm. It cleverly holds back the big speech from Tennant so that when he does emerge, it, 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 it has an impact. And I think that because he is such a good actor, it doesn't feel like you've waited without the Doctor for nothing. It's, it is the sort of climactic moment that you want it to be. Yeah. And I wonder if maybe that's a thing about... If there's a, if there's a lesson there about how it can't be bombastic all the time and I think mm-hmm. that I've no- I noticed a few times over watching these episodes something that I hadn't really noticed certainly on a first watch which is how much the score kind of oh, yeah. um, in a way in a lot of particularly in Runaway Bride where there's this like banter between um, David Tennant and Catherine Tate that's quite like humorous but there's this music in the background so that we know that it's funny and it's supposed yeah. to be a funny yeah, moment yeah. And I feel like a lot of the time, not only the score, but also maybe the acting is at that kind of up to full, yeah. mm. like, yeah. all the time. And I think that one of the nice things about Christmas Invasion really is that even though it's a Christmas episode and they do have all the Christmassy stuff, there's also the times that we get with just Rose, Mickey and Jackie being not sure about what they're going to do. Yeah. And I, I think on a rewatch, those are the bits that really stick out to me. Because, like, the Tenth Doctor's first grand appearance works really, really well in Christmas of 2005. 
or if it is your first Tenth Doctor episode, even if it's not, to be honest. But it naturally, and uh, through like no fault of the writing or the or Tennant's performance or anything, it just naturally loses some impact over the years. In the same way that when we come to talk about the next Doctor, that's an episode that like had its impact very much in that exact period of time, mm. uh, and then really never again. Yeah, so I think because of that, it looks like uh, a really savvy move to hold that back and to have those quieter moments mm. with Rose and her family. And actually, it occurs to me that something similar, not quite the same, but uh, something vaguely similar in terms of that formula is used in Deep Breath as well, uh, in that a lot of that episode is about Clara and about how she will react to the Doctor suddenly being a completely different person. Mm. I also think that mixed in amongst the like the token Christmassy stuff, there's some interesting other moments. Like I think that the the feature of the people going to stand on high places and like they might jump is genuinely quite unsettling. And yes, unnerving. yes. And I had forgotten that completely, pretty much. But I think that that is quite genuinely scary. Like mm. the image of all these people just stood there and when what are they going to do yeah. and the sort of moral dilemma and I also quite like the, the process of figuring out what is it that connects all these people mm, yeah. and then it's blood groups mm. and it's my blood group. Ah! Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that there's some interesting ideas and I think it's a shame in a way that, that the things that are taken away from this episode for future Christmas episodes aren't the things that really work about it it's the kind of surface yeah christmas stuff yeah the i'm glad you brought up the the blood control thing actually because i do really like that idea i think it's a really cool quite a creepy idea Mm. i do have a slight logical issue with it in that like i don't quite understand how the sycorax know how blood types are distributed across the human race yeah yeah because they know it'll affect a lot of people, but not everyone. Mm. Um, so it's not quite clear how they think that's going to work and like who they're expecting to negotiate with in that instance. Mm. I think my boy, scientist with the ridiculously Welsh name that I've forgotten. Oh, yeah. Probably, I think he was like Llewellyn Davies well, or something. Yeah, yes. Um, I assume maybe that he puts some sort of explanation in his, in his mixtape or yeah, whatever he maybe. sent out to them. Yeah, so I, I do... I think that it is weird that they automatically know how a blood type would work, mm. but mm. it's, mm. you know... Yeah, I mean, that's that's me being kind of nitpicky. Mm. Yeah. Don't challenge me, Harriet Jones, because I'm a completely new man. I could bring down your government with a single word. You're the most remarkable man I've ever met. But I don't think you're quite capable of that. No, you're right. Not a single word. Just six. I don't think so. Six words. Stop it. Six. Don't you think she looks tired? Harriet Jones. Oh. Yeah, I was just thinking about her. Got stuff about Prime that. Prime Minister. Yeah. <laughs> when will they get me to voice a cigarette? <laughs> yeah, so Harriet Jones. The time frame is mysterious for mm-hmm. a start. Because, like, we don't know how much time has passed. 
since uh, Aliens of London World War Three. But it's obviously enough time that her mysterious party of government has been able to have a leadership election, which obviously she has won. Presumably, there would have to be a general election as well. There is, because she said she won a landslide majority. Oh, yes, yeah. you're right, you're right. Which is interesting. Uh, for yes, yes. Jackie's £18 better off a week, thanks uh, to her. Oh, yes. also interesting <laughs> for reasons. Um, <laughs> the time frame at the end is weird as well, because suddenly a vote of no confidence seems to have sprung up in a matter of hours. Mm. Like, the doctor whispers something to her aide, mm. and then suddenly, is, did he like go off and talk to the leader of the opposition or something? It, it's also, quite mysterious. Also, I have to say, a vote of no confidence over... A health scare for which there is no evidence. Yeah. It's, it's very even, strange. It's not even a health... It's 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 like only just a health a scare. Really, yeah. really, it? It's, it, and it's very superficial. And it's... I wasn't necessarily planning on getting to this yet, but it is basically weaponized misogyny. Mm. Because it's trading on the appearance and the, like, perceived competence of a female leader. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I guess, like, also bearing in mind that in Doctor Who terms, this is like only the second mm. female prime minister ever. Yeah. So it's kind of harsh to take her down using tiredness. I know yeah. they say similar. I know they say similar things about male politicians and male prime ministers, but it's not quite. I don't it's think the fact it's that the it's like this will yeah. destroy her. Yeah. yeah. But also, it just kind of makes me feel sad that it's not so easy to take down anybody <laughs> anymore. Um. Hmm. Like, what six words would you have to say now to take down the Prime Minister? Yeah. Uh, I, I I don't think there is such a formula. No. Judging by, like, the election campaign we've just been through. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it, it, Harriet Jones is interesting because, obviously, this is done in 2005. And so we're in the era of New Labour. Yes. We're in the yes. era of Tony Blair, unfortunately. And there's clear parallels drawn between mm. her and between New Labour. Uh, you know, the fact that she won a landslide majority, the fact that Jackie is £18 a, a week better off. Yeah. Um, or whatever it is. All of that's there. And the idea that they're calling it Britain's golden age yes, as well, yes. you know. Mm. Um, because I think that's how, particularly in the early Blair years, it was almost seen as like, mm. you know, New Hope. And, mm. and I think all the all the flag stuff comes into it as well because of course Blair has had that element of of like nationalism you know with the mm. whole like cool Britannia thing yes, which is yes. obviously this is a bit after that I would say it is but yeah. I think that legacy is still certainly there yeah. yeah 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 Rose was having her little what was it ginger spice mm. moment in, <laughs> baby spice which one was the union whichever one it was yeah. she was having that moment in the previous season as well so that's the one union yeah. jack continuity and it happens to also be something associated with the cool britannia mm. vibe well this is the thing is what i think there's something else going on with this which is that i think the entire episode is a comment on nationalism and it's a comment on imperialism doesn't quite work for reasons that i'll get on to but because if you think about the way that harriet jones talks about the space probe she talks about British workmanship sailing up there among the stars. Mm. She talks about the idea that it represents the country's you know, limitless ambition. There's a mm. sense in which space exploration is seen as a way of 
extending British influence. There's also the fact that uh, she has the bit where she um, sends the message to the the US president about he's not my boss. Yeah. Um, which is almost like a fantasized version of what people thought Tony Blair should be yeah. in some ways. Yeah, like the yeah. Prime Minister in Love, actually. Yeah, that is the first thing <laughs> I thought of, actually. Um, oh. It's also interesting that they're called the Sycorax on that like imperialism idea, because that's the name of the witch in The Tempest that's Caliban's uh, mother. Ah, yes. And that's yeah. kind of, The Tempest is kind of a yeah. microcosm of a colonial project yeah. in some mm, ways, which mm. is why it's been like picked up in a lot of like post-colonial yeah. discourse well that's what i was going to say as well actually because i think the sycorax are they talk in kind of terms of colonialism mm. and yeah. in terms of empire you know they talk about they talk about humans as cattle they say we now possess your land your minerals your precious stone he talks about either you know killing a third of the population through the blood control mm. you know because supposedly he can do that or selling one half into slavery mm. So all of that is there, and I think there's a sense in which the Sycorax are kind of inverting this empire narrative and reflecting back the kind of more malignant history of all the Union Jacks that we're seeing and all the nationalist rhetoric that we're seeing that is all mm, based mm. in empire and has, and has stemmed from empire. Now, where I think this goes a little bit odd is that the blood control thing the doctor calls it a cheap bit of voodoo. Mm. Now, mm. yeah, yeah, not like you know, like voodoo has a a long history in relation to like colonialism and slavery, particularly in Haiti and the yeah. Haitian Revolution. You know, it's like, and and even within texts that deal with with those kind of issues. You know, if you read something like the Farming of the Bones, or if you read like Mike Niblett's work on realism, this idea that voodoo is often used and the imagery around it is used to to show a kind of return of a repressed past of colonial exploitation Hmm. and there seems to be something odd in that where on the one hand the sycorax are supposed to be they're using the language of kind of domination and invasion but at the same time they're also using a mode of resistance from oppressed people, mm, mm. and there's, there's, there, I think there's a real confusion in there that's quite problematic. Because even yeah. the notion of the blood control turning people into as, as effectively zombies, yeah. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah, is aligned with the kind of the idea of voodoo at least. Yeah. So it's not kind of a, just a throwaway piece of phrasing as well. Yeah. It's difficult because I think that those ideas are like are in play, but I don't know how much of it is. I struggle with understanding the union flags as being a commentary just because i know that they come back in like a jingoistic yeah they do but also like there's also the whole torture thing as well with this Mm. and like torture is a remnant of empire that's how it's portrayed that's true victoria sets it up and they blow up the cigarette ship at the end of it Mm. Um, which is an interesting moment because on the one hand again there's a kind of there's a Tony Blair kind of mm. invasion idea going on there but it's also a Thatcherite moment yeah because it's the firing on the the Belgrano Belgrano thank you well um, again I think that's the point I mean in the same way you have the kind of this weird conflation of two elements that are completely opposed to one another within the Sycorax you also have 
something similar within the figure of Harriet Jones, like you say, mm. with the, the New Labour Thatcherism thing. But I, I don't know, like, I kind of see that as a, as a comment on what New Labour is. It's the idea that, you know, New Labour is seen as something new and different and hopeful, mm. and Harriet Jones is seen as someone progressive. But within it, there's this kind of, almost like this, this cancerous growth of Thatcherism, which is what it has sprung out of and is what New Labour was, mm. really. And I guess the kind of destruction of the Sycorax ship is the culmination of all the colonial narrative as well. You know, the way in which the use of flags and a nationalist rhetoric in a supposedly positive and progressive way ends up spilling over into something destructive because that's what it is by its very nature and that's mm. where its roots are. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, later on it does... I think they do get used differently. Mm. And I think... I think there's definitely there's definitely some kind of attempt at an anti like empire discourse mm. here mm. but I think that it's muddled and I think that it's superficial which is the word that we've used to describe Russell T Davies period before it's mm. kind of um, strange as well because um as we discussed in the series 1 ep- episodes in Aliens of London, World War Three. The mm. guy who falls out of the the cabinet in the cabinet, the mm. cabinet cabinet, yeah, um, is clearly supposed to, to be also be Blair. Yeah, and so then they definitely are again using those kinds of images with mm. Harriet Jones. So it's kind of as if like the Doctor changes and the Doctor is still the Doctor, but also the Prime Minister changes, but the Prime Minister is still inherently corrupt. Mm. And it doesn't help that the person who takes over the next Prime Minister we we see is Harold Saxon. Yeah. Who is also kind of Tony Blair and also, I think, kind of David Cameron in some mm. ways. Mm. Uh, obviously, he's not cropping up really in this discussion, apart from very briefly in Runaway Bride, which is confusing, but I'll get to that. <laughs> but, yeah, I think we can talk about that one whenever we get to Series 3. Because there's def- there's something going on there as well mm. with the kind of the mass hypnosis mm. uh, and all of that and yeah I I mean we talked a lot of in the series one thing about how Davies clearly has an axe to grind with New Labour quite understandably oh, yes. in many ways uh, but yeah I, th- I I think you're right in kind of in reading this as um, as a kind of a continued um, exercise in that. There's another point that I want to make about this episode and that actually I want to kind of keep an eye on as we go through the Christmas specials. Because in series one, a thread that we picked up on, and I think particularly, um, Beth, and I remember you were praising this in Father's Day, but it comes up in some of the other episodes as well, is the notion of the ordinary, the ordinary human and the importance of that. Mm. Here, that gets a little bit muddled, I think, because... Rose, throughout the episode, talks about there's no one to save us and the Doctor is incapacitated and we need the Doctor, someone's got to to help us. She does step up and actually, like, she articulates it herself that she is being the Doctor Mm. in talking to the Sycorax. A little bit like Ace does at the end of Survival, I think. But it's also made clear that she can't. You know, she's kind of trying to deploy these sort of sci-fi terms. But it doesn't work because they immediately see through her kind of her bluster. Mm. 
No, there's a kind there's a counter narrative to that within the episode, in that it's made clear actually humanity can stand up for itself with Torchwood. Which is obviously framed as bad. Yeah. But the the thing is, it doesn't at all challenge this kind of this savior narrative, which is a big deal in um throughout Tenant's tenure and I think particularly in the Christmas specials. Obviously this is gonna come back in Voyage of the Damned. But like the the impression I get is that humanity is depraved and in need of a savior. Which it basically gets. I mean, I don't know if it's the the fact that this is taking place at Christmas and is framed around Christmas that makes this the arrival of the incarnation of a savior narrative all more apparent. But I think it's definitely in there. And while it will become more overt as we go on, I I think that that Christ-like narrative, which I should uh, at this point say I really don't like. I really don't like that fra- framing of the Doctor. Mm. We all know that Pete Tyler is the true Christ allegory. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, it, that, I guess the thing with that framing, I think it, it causes a lot of the really bombastic, to use your term, grandstanding that I really don't like about the Tenant era. Yes. But also, it, I guess it goes back to a thing from the Cartmel era, <laughs> which we keep coming back to, mm. which is that one of the things that Cartmel said was when they were coming up with this idea of making the Doctor more mysterious, more powerful, mm. they had this idea of him being part of the like triumvirate that founded Gallifrey. Yeah. So he's a godlike being to the Gallifreyans. The moment John Nathan Turner heard the word God, he was like, oh God, no, don't do that, basically. Mm. But like Andrew Cartwell said himself, like, he was never intending to make him God or anything like that because yeah. he's, it doesn't work because he's too powerful. Mm. And I think that's a big issue I have with this. There's a major difference between what they do in the McCoy era and what they do with this. Mm. Um, and I don't think that this, like you said, this like Christ-like portrayal is is a very fruitful way to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's more... I've, I have a lot more of a problem with it in Voyage of the Damned. Mm. But basically, I mean, my, my problem is more than anything, my problem is that... I find this kind of Christ-like allegory just really lazy mm. and uh, a really lazy way to kind of add that kind of vaguely mythological, vaguely metaphysical aura to something and vaguely archetypal as well, I suppose, in some ways. And it's it's just kind of cheap and mm. it's n- because it's not really thought through here, more than anything, I think, it takes away from that privileging of and that emphasis on the everyday, which mm. is something that I really like in series one and that I really like when the show does in general. And I think a lot of my problem in actually, I think all of these Christmas specials is the fact that it really pointedly shifts emphasis away from that. And to the doctor is this unreachable sort of icon. Mm. If you like, even it's a bad Christ analogy because it's, um, it's just the divinity and not the humanity. Mm. Mm. I think they try and get some of that everyday back in with Jackie kind of saving the day by bringing a flask of tea into <laughs> there the is TARDIS. That, yeah. But she doesn't really get, like, thanked for it. Yeah. It's not, like... I mean, I guess they didn't want to make it super overt, even though they've made loads of other things really, really overt. <laughs> mm. But, like, 
I don't know. And uh, yeah, I think that the thing about Rose when she says someone's got to be the doctor and then they all laugh at her is a bit quite a stark contrast actually with what she does at the end of Rose, the first episode that she's yes. in. Yes, yeah, good point. Where it's her whole thing is that it's just the kind of skills that she's picked up as an ordinary person that mm. allow her to save the day, but here it's made absolutely clear that humanity needs the doctor and that humans themselves ordinary humans are not sufficient and i think that is a mm. bit depressing if you think about it too much <laughs> yeah it's a it's a problem i have with davis era actually with the way he he treats his companions is there is always a hierarchy that gets reasserted between the doctor and the companion mm. and like i i think the the strongest uh, sort of manifestation of that and the one that bothers me most is what happens to donna which comes across almost like a punishment of her daring to assert equality with the doctor mm. briefly mm. um we'll we'll get onto that at some point i'm sure mm. but it it's something that really bothers me in this era and i think like this this thing with rose sort of briefly trying to take on that mantle and as you say basically getting swatted down is a kind of minor example of that but i think it's quite telling Mm. especially because she she is so overt about the fact that that is what she is doing Mm. glad to see jackie and mickey yeah yeah Mm. Uh, mickey's job revealed because he's in the mechanics listening Mm. to is it slade i think Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that's the first, that's the only actual not a carol Christmas song that they use in any of the Christmas specials. I think, like the Chris, the only Christmas pop hit. I feel like I think they've used Slade in a couple of them, yeah. maybe, but, uh, okay. but just the same song. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was fun to hear it anyway, and I was glad to see Mickey and Jackie because I think yeah. they're always, yeah. always good to have around. Even though I think in the higher, if there is a hierarchy, I think that they kind of put them below Rose. Yes. Like, but I am glad. I was glad they were there. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I mean, they are something of a counter to what I was saying about like the ordinary being kind of pushed aside in this episode, at least. Mm. Lars was right. We're just tiny. Oh, but that's what you do. The human race makes sense out of chaos, marking it out with weddings and. Christmas and calendars. This whole process is beautiful, but only if it's being observed. So, shall we move on to the runaway bride then? Yeah, sure. Right, okay. Let's go backwards this time because Jacob just made a noise. So, Jacob, what do you think of the runaway bride? It's just pretty dreadful, really. <laughs> it's got all the... A lot of the elements that I don't like about Davies' Christmas specials, it's cynically regurgitating elements from the previous Christmas special, as we discussed, uh, which is quite frankly lazy writing. Half of it doesn't even go anywhere, it just plods around for quite a long time, uh, and then eventually we get to the Ragnos, and then it starts to be resolved somewhat. But most of it, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> See, I find that interesting because I was pleasantly surprised uh, revisiting this one. I had I hadn't seen it in years. I don't I don't think I'd seen any of these in years. But 
This one I I hadn't seen in a long time, and I can remember actually when I first saw it being pleasantly surprised by it because I kind of wasn't sure what to expect of Catherine Tate and like quite enjoyed her performance. Although I have problems with how Donna is presented in this one, but we'll mm. get onto that. Mm. It's funny because I actually have quite a few problems with this one with the the plot of it. There are various things that I think don't quite gel and don't quite go anywhere. But I still find her reasonably inoffensive to just kind of sit down and watch. Which, in a way, I th- think is exactly what it's designed for as a Christmas special. Like, it's it's setting things up because we have the obligatory mention of Mr. Saxon. And also, I mean, we should say that now it looks very different to how it did then because now we view it as the introduction of Donna, mm. a lot of people's favourite companion, at least of the, the Davies era. Whereas at the time, she was a one-off guest star. In the same way that Kylie will be in uh, Voyage of the Damned. Still waiting for the return of Astrid, everyone's favourite Doctor mm-hmm. Who companion. <laughs> uh, she tops all the polls. So yeah, I, I think it's it's basically fine. Not amazing, but like, not. I don't think it's actually dreadful either. Yeah, I, I don't, I think I just don't have particularly strong feelings about it, I would say. I'm probably the most positive about it from the sound of things. I enjoyed it. I had fun re-watching it. I do have some issues again with how Donna specifically is dealt with in the episode, but none of those are really anything to do with Catherine Tate or her performance. I think hmm. that her and David Tennant have a fun chemistry, which is presumably why they went on to star in Much Do About Nothing together and... Hmm also why Donna was brought back as a companion, I think, yeah, in part. I, think so. I don't like the recycling of the other Christmas yeah. monsters, as we've mentioned. I think that was silly and a really lazy way to try and bring some Christmassy theming into the episode. And I think that my issue... I'll, I'll, I'll get into my issue with how they deal with Donna now, because yeah. I may as well... I was going to suggest starting I there I feel anyway. like they... Maybe they somewhat tried to preempt people who knew her sketch show and did not like it or thought she was obnoxious because they seem to incorporate a lot of people being mean to Donna when she's not really done anything Mm. and just for like talking like a lot of the jokes are like she says something and then there's some sort of response along the lines of like oh she's got a gob on her Mm. and that's it which is like one of the main virtues of the 10th doctor yeah. So there's something weirdly gendered going on there, to yeah. say the least. And there's some like weird commentary on marriage where they're being mm. where where what's he say? He says like, "Oh, good luck, Lance," when she like says something that's a bit uh, snippy. I don't know. Yeah. And it's like I don't know. Even before you find out that the whole marriage is a sham, it's a bit like, "Oh God, why would anybody ever get married in married in this universe where we seem to be implying mm. that it's." seen as like some sort of ball and chain nonsense like it was in the if if you're like a 50s stand-up comedian or Mm. something that's exactly what that is i couldn't express it but that was how i was thinking of it was it's like something from an offensive comedy routine you know Mm. the way in which she's kind of portrayed Mm. um Mm. and the way in which lance goes on about her like Oh, I've had to put up with this and that and all the rest of it. Like, uh, yeah. 
Mm. See, the thing is, even the doctor indulges in a bit of that because the bit yeah. in the beginning where he's scanning her and he says, "You're not special. You're not clever. You're not important to her," yeah. which goes completely counter to all the things that we said that we like about ordinary mm. people being, like, yeah, I'll come back to special this, for yeah. their ordinariness. But then also, Lance kind of, I know that he's bad, but when he says he says the things that she's interested in. And then he says something along the lines of fat, stupid trivia, which mm. is talking about the things she's interested in, but also, I think, implies that we're supposed to think of Donna as both, like, fat and stupid. Yeah. Which is just really cruel. Mm. And, I mean, there's also the thing where um, she's trying to get a taxi in her wedding dress and people are, like, sh- showing things at her. Mm. And it's kind of funny for the first couple of things i think one of them's like they think i'm drunk which is like kind of makes sense yeah but then the last one is like they think i'm a bloke because he says you're not fooling oh, anyone yeah. mate yeah which yeah. is obviously a dig at donna's appearance but it's also like quite transphobic but yeah it's because the thing that he says specifically is you're not fooling anyone mate which sounds oh, like yeah a, which yeah. is like a transphobic thing but yeah it's just all there's a lot of a lot of the a lot of the humor that is not the jokes between the Doctor and Donna, and even some of that, is like just people being mean about Donna. Yeah, and it's like I think the one that particularly got me is the like the flashback of her and Lance's relationship. Oh yeah, where she's like nagging him, and it's portrayed very much as nagging. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the best word I can think of for yeah. it. It's like I think I made the analogy possibly about that at the time, certainly in my notes, that it's like, it's like some kind of Chaucerian comedy mm. of, yeah. like, the nagging wife that doth cook, not cook old. <laughs> and here we seeth the scold. <laughs> the shrew. Who with her sharp tongue doth beat her husband till he is a mere frog. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think this is this is what gets me with this episode, though, is the fact that nearly the whole episode is taken up with stuff like that. Nearly all of it is that. Nearly all of it is her nagging someone. It's her being made fun of. Hmm. You know, nearly all of it is that. And most of it is just, like, nonsensical dialogue and quite offensive dialogue like that. And then finally, towards the end, it finally starts to coalesce into some kind of plot, even though it's, like, frankly... Not a very good plot, to say the least, but I just... Yeah, oh, there's I the bit where he it. says he'd rather have sex with the spider lady than with Donna. Oh, yeah. What's that I thing? He's quite explicit that. about that. It's I something didn't... like... The Doctor says something like, oh, what are you then? The consort to the Queen of the Ragnos. Oh, yeah. And he's like, Brandon's spending a night with with her or something. Yeah. And it's really, really horrible because, yeah. like, it's not so bad if you think that maybe they were, like saving it till marriage Mm. but then he's probably actually talking about yeah yeah. and it's just even aside from the fact that he is Mm. apparently at least potentially having sex with a giant spider which is troubling in itself i mean to be honest that's the least of my issues with the comment because whatever 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 he he wants to do in his own private time i should i should clarify you know when i say i think this is terrible this is because I think pretty much all the Christmas specials that we're going to talk about, except the Christmas Invasion, are dreadful. And mm. I actually think that this is not the worst mm. by quite a long chalk. 
but I still don't like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for all the things I'm saying about it, I still stand by what I said, where yeah. I said, like, I quite, enjoy, I quite enjoyed watching it. But I think part of the reason why I'm so frustrated by this vein of humour mm. running through the episode is because I actually really like Donna. Like, yeah. I like... I think that Catherine Tate is doing a good job of making her a likeable human character with some warmth there, even mm. though a lot of it is just sort of jokes based on, I guess, what people think the kind yeah. of character that Catherine Tate would play mm. would mm. be like. Because yeah. I think there's definitely some kind of... I'd never really watched the sketch show, but I think there's definitely some kind of dialogue going on between yeah. what we expect Catherine Tate to be yeah. like. But I think that she actually brings a real sort of warmth to the character mm. and I think yeah. that that's what people really connected with with Donna and why they brought her back. Well that's another reason why I don't like this episode It's the fact that like you say it's playing off Catherine Tate's you know like comedic mm. characters as far as I know them and you know at the time um, I think she was fairly popular wasn't she? Like, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I like, think her show had had a couple of seasons at that point, yeah. and like, yeah. And I feel like it's that it's that kind of like cynical stunt casting again. It's like Russell T Davies on autopilot. I'm going to write an episode that's frankly lazy, doesn't really do anything. And what I'm going to do so we can get the Christmas viewing figures in is I'm going to hire someone who is well known and will draw the audience in by writing a character that is, you know, kind of a kind of offensive portrayal of what they do in their comedy routine. Mm. Um, I might just um, copy a lot of what you've just said and paste it into the Voyage of the Damned bit as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's but, kind of like, so you like Catherine mm. Tate's popular show, here's her doing something similar. Mm. So you don't like Catherine Tate's yeah. popular show, here's her being insulted for an hour. <laughs> yeah. So like... Yeah. I, I think it's just that sense again of like the commercial element of the program overtaking the fact that it should be high quality television and that's what I have a big problem with nearly every Christmas special that we're going to talk about like nearly every single one of them I can bring up a stunt the whole episode is a stunt mm. to yeah. get viewing figures mm. and that's all it is Particularly when we get to the next doctor. Yes, yes. I think that's um, the most egregious. I think, this, I think yeah. this is more... So the first two, Christmas mm. Invasion even, and this, are both kind of stunts because Christmas Invasion is playing off the the casting of the new doctor. But I yeah. think mm. that's fine because that is like yeah, a big feature of the show. Yeah, and I think the episode is decent. I don't mind the casting of Catherine Tate, but that's mostly because of what she does with the character mm. and yeah. because I know that Donna comes back and I happen to really like mm. Donna. Mm. But I do agree that I think that they did it because it's like a celebrity yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. casting of someone who was very popular at the time. Mm. Like, It's also worth remembering that both Runaway Bride and Voyage of the Damned form cliffhangers with the actual series. Yes. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course. Series 2 ends with Donna appearing in the TARDIS and Series 3 ends with the Titanic crushing through the wall, mm. which I'll have more to say about in a bit. One thing I want to pick up on, actually, is... Um, Actually, no, sorry, I have one more point to make about Donna uh, in this Ooh. in this episode, which has only really occurred to me now as we've been talking about it, but this episode is called The Runaway Bride, mm. and it, like, nominally kind of centres around her. What does she do in it? Well, you see, her lady emotions kicked in at just the right time <laughs> Oh yeah, whatever was supposed to happen with the Ragnos yeah. going on. 
and so therefore she was very important not because she was actually doing anything but because because she was pushy and that worked out even though Lance was already feeding her the stuff so he should theoretically yeah. have wanted to go out with her because that was part of the plan but then yeah. he doesn't I don't really know what was going on with that but there yeah. were a lot of great jokes about how much of a scold she was <laughs> as far as I can tell the one thing that she does like actively does of consequence in this episode that isn't driven by the doctor or someone else is when she shouts at him to stop standing mm-hmm. in the rain looking all mopey yeah, uh, and apparently saves his life by doing that, which I do not understand. But we'll talk about turn left at some point. Oh, she yeah. decides as well. She decides that she's going to um, change her ways and travel and see the world and stop being interested in the things that she's interested mm-hmm. in previously. Because the doctor made her better. Yeah. So and so Lance mm. was right. She shouldn't have been interested in like fairly innocuous celebrity. Yeah. Like, isn't one of the things like soaps and Russell T Davis used to write for soaps? Well, and also like the whole the whole thing plays very consciously with 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 uh, with the soap opera, like the whole yeah. Davis era. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, in the Christmas Invasion, there's the bit where the Sycorax ship basically invades the EastEnders. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> credits. Also a Christmas but special. He, um, I know mm. EastEnders. Yeah, true. But yeah, the ending kind of soon. The ending like reinforces this idea that what she was interested in before was just because because she hadn't been opening her eyes mm. to what she should really be interested mm. in and it just makes me sad because like there's no reason why she can't have her interests and still be like cool and interesting and exciting yeah. and her interests are quite feminine coded as well yeah which is also quite dodgy if if they are like because on the one hand, you could um, just see it as sort of Lance being misogynistic when he kind of denigrates them. But as you say, it's the fact that the episode seems to imply that she, through contact with the Doctor, pivots away mm. from what she was interested in. Or takes on some like worthier interests. Yes. The secret heart unlocks and they will waken from their sleep. Of ages. Oh well. What's down there? How thick are you? There is one more thing I want to move on to then before we potentially move on from TRB, the runaway bride. Yes, yes. Which is actually something uh, you've already brought up, Bethan. Which is when the doctor says to Donna, like, you're not special, you're not clever, you're not important. And it is kind of like in that scene it is framed as him being kind of rude. Like, I think your sympathy is meant to lie with her. But it's still, like, it doesn't sit easy with me just the fact that he is saying that and he is baffled that, like, an ordinary person could turn out to be important. Because it's kind of, it's a weird prioritization that the Doctor seems to have. in Actually, in this episode, because even later on after the, the robot Santas have attacked and there's lots of, lots of, like, injured people lying around, he's not particularly bothered about them. I can't even remember if he acknowledges them out loud, but he certainly like makes a point of like I'm gonna go off and like solve the thing without really seeming to pay much mind to these people who have been harmed, partly through kind of his fault if we're honest mm. in bringing Donna there. I think the the comment about 
that he makes about Donna as well, because that is supposed to be him being unguarded and a bit unfeeling, hmm. raises the question of what are we supposed to think of the times when he's not being unfeeling and does say that ordinary people matter? Yeah. Like, is that seriously what he thinks? Because when he's not checking his yeah. language, he is saying the complete opposite. So I think it, hmm. it raises... A, it's it's an uncomfortable moment for the character of the Doctor, or at least for this version of him. Oh, yes, one more thing. Harold Saxon. What's Harold Saxon doing at this point in time? Uh, so he's being someone that we definitely all want to vote for and also for some reason has a private military operation. See, that's the problem. Because <laughs> he presumably can't be prime minister yet. Or, like, the stuff that he's doing in The Sound of Drums would kind of have, have become apparent mm. and the Doctor would possibly have noticed. But he's, like, influential enough to be able to have some tanks at his command. So, yeah, I, I don't quite understand what he... Is he, like, defence secretary or something, maybe? They do... I can't... I, I so since I've seen it, but they do list, don't they, a load of the posts that he held before in The Sound of Drums, but I don't know what they say. Yeah, I'd have to look did. that up, because this, this does just baffle me. He's um, running a mercenary operation. He's running Blackwater... Maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe he's running Torchwood. I do love that there's, um, you know, there's the secret basement with secret doors in the under the place where Donna works. And there's a giant Torchwood logo on the secret door in the secret basement. <laughs> like the, Once you get into the, the secret stuff, they're quite unguarded, actually, with their identity. That's so that the people who are coming there for the Torchwood orgies know right. which door and don't accidentally go to the wrong part of the mm. office building because that could be really awkward. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's my theory. <laughs> it should be busy. Something's wrong. But it's beautiful. Really? Do you think so? It's just a street. The pyramids are beautiful and New Zealand. It's a different planet. I'm standing on a different planet. There's concrete and... Shops, alien shops, real alien shops. Look, no stars in the sky. And it smells. It stinks! Oh, this is amazing! Thank you! So, let's move on to Voyage of the Damned, or V of the D, as I've uh, written it in my notes because I'm cool like that. Bethan, do you want to start us off on this one? Um, I can do. I don't know if I have very much to say other than it's not very good Mm. like it's just consistently bad I think Mm. I don't really they tried to do something that wasn't killer Christmas trees and we learned why (laughs) they'd fallen Mm. back on killer Christmas trees but yeah it just doesn't really I don't really understand why it's the Titanic because that's not really a Christmas thing it seems kind of tacky slash borderline insensitive from Mm. the show there even though I know the point is that the rich people are being tacky slash borderline insensitive but it still is that Mm. yeah there's just a whole load of stuff in it that doesn't really make sense or lead anywhere like why are there angels what's with the whole cyborg discourse how much of it is supposed to be like the Titanic and how much is just coincidence Mm. and yeah it's just a bit don't really get it. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, Jacob, do you want to give us your thoughts? It's just a dull 
over-the-top, cynical rip-off of the Poseidon adventure from the 1970s. And mm, that is yeah. all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't made the Poseidon adventure uh, mm. connection before, but yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I went into this not having seen it in probably like 10 years or something. And I was aware going in that it has a reputation as being like, quite a few people probably say this is like their least favourite Doctor Who ever or certainly of the new series. Mm-hmm. And so I went into it being like, okay, you know what, I'm going to try, in spirit of Christmas, I'm going to try and be charitable. <laughs> I'm going to try and find some redemptive reading of this. I'm going to try and find maybe something interesting that it's saying. Uh, and for the first maybe 10 minutes or so, I was like, okay, maybe there's something going on. There's obviously, there's like commentary on we- wealth inequality. Oh God, is there commentary on wealth inequality? Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, maybe there's something going on here. And then after those first 10 minutes, I was just like, no, 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 there's, there's, there's nothing here. There's nothing. At the very beginning, just the, the image of like the the Titanic crashing into the TARDIS is pretty much what this episode is. Mm. That's the reason this episode exists. And I think what what's interesting about that is the reason why the Titanic is able to crash into the TARDIS is only explained in like an offhand line in a Children of Need special written by a different writer. I think that kind of sums this episode up quite well. Yeah. To be clear about that. The whole reason why time crash happens is because the the tenth doctor hasn't turned off hasn't turned up the shields on his TARDIS or something. And at the end of that episode, as the fifth doctor fades away, he says like, "Oh, remember to turn the shields back on, Doctor." And then the the Titanic happens. Uh, right. Love a satisfying explanation. Yeah, yeah. It's better than nothing, just about. <laughs> I mean, clearly, part of the reason what we were like what we alluded to before that part of the reason why they used why it is the Titanic is so that they could have that cliffhanger of the Titanic crashing into the TARDIS and then everyone's like oh the Titanic that's something we're interested in because yeah Mm. and again it comes Um, down to that thing of the commercial drive of the program it means that like any of the artistic impulses are subordinate to the commercial drive of the program it's like, oh, we're going to include this thing, even though the episode's going to be terrible, so that we have a cliffhanger into the next one, and once again we're going to do some stunt casting to get people to watch it. And it's just like... See, I yeah. think, like... I know what you mean, but I I think it, it was perfect, probably perfectly possible to write a really good episode of Doctor Who on, like, a Starship Titanic with Kylie Minogue on it. So I don't think the artistic... I understand, but I don't think the artistic impulse needs to be subordinate to the commercial. Uh, I think it would be possible for them to work together. And I think there are other points where Davies is better at getting them to work together. I mean, even in the, the casting of Catherine Tate, for one thing. But it's it's not working here at all, in any way. I just, I think I don't like the the, the, the flying Titanic idea at all. And... I don't really see any way in which I would ever want that to be in the program. Um, I, I don't know. I'm I'm sure there are ways to make it work. As because the the episode is gesturing towards things like the idea of of Earth being viewed in this kind of imperialist sort of colonialist way as like a, a primitive culture for tourists to like gawk at. 
And that's that's not a bad idea in itself, I think. Mm. Um, there's something interesting going on there. The problem is it's it exists alongside so many other ideas yeah. that which mostly aren't as interesting and as well thought out as that one, it must be said. Mm. That it just doesn't have room to breathe. I well, think mm. it's just the it's just the fact that there's no real elaboration on like there is an explanation of why it's the Titanic, which is oh, it's the most famous Earth ship, mm. which I'm not a hundred percent sure would be true. Yeah, but like also, I don't think that they really made it make sense on like a as an aesthetic choice either. Like there wasn't really any fruitful. Mm. There wasn't anything meaningful that came out from mm. it being the Titanic either, yeah. so it did just seem sort of slapped on because they mentioned things that are references to the actual ship Titanic, such as um, the two, the working class couple who are on the mm. ship, of which more. Yes. Oh yes. Um, they mentioned something that oh they think we should be in steerage, mm. which is a thing on the Titanic because yeah. the, that was where. I guess the equivalent of like third class is it steerage? Yeah. But I don't understand why that would be a thing on what's supposed to be like a cruise liner. Yeah. And yeah. that is only supposed to have the sort of bare minimum of mm. Titanic trappings slapped on it, maybe. Mm. Um, and then it's also Christmas, even though the Titanic was not sailing at Christmas no. time. Yeah. So that's not a there's not a through line there. Mm. What were you gonna say, Jacob? I was Sorry. gonna say I think. From what I understand, Davies originally, when he started thinking about this Christmas special, the f- the the thing what was driving it was that he'd wanted to do a disaster movie in Doctor Who for a while. Right. Yeah. And that's why it's a rip off of a Poseidon Adventure. That's why nearly all the characters in it correspond to characters from the Poseidon Adventure, in terms of like their attributes and even appearance in some cases. And kind of the ways, even the ways that they die are nearly exactly the same. And I think, I guess that's one of the issues. Is like, if you're going to have this narrative about inequality, that surely had to be at the heart of the episode. It had to be the seed that out of which the rest of it grew. And yeah. instead it's not that. The disaster movie is the seed out of which the rest of it grew. And mm. the inequality is just tagged onto the end of it. At yeah, least that's how I read it. Anyway, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think the, I think that seems to grow out of the idea of it being the Titanic, and mm. um, mm. when really it should have been the other way around. Mm. Be- especially because it's there to begin with. It's there for maybe the first ten fifteen minutes, and it's kind of really fades from view once the like, once the the ship has started has been damaged and mm. once most of the passengers are dead. But even when it's there, it's kind of, it's very hit and miss, I think. Because, for instance, one thing that really bothered me is uh, the Doctor has this nice little kind of uh, connection moment with Astrid. Uh, And then he's like, oh, come here, I'm going to take you down to Earth. And she's like, no, no, I might lose my job for this. And he's like, (laughs) who cares? Jobs aren't important. You got me there. (laughs) So it's like it's a it's a weird moment of like wanting to kind of to make this point of oh here's this this working class woman am- among all of these horrible snobbish people, but not really like that's not really worked through. And there's not much real commentary there other than like here is this thing and here is this thing. Yeah. 
proceed. And she's wearing a short dress, even though all the other passengers are dressed in Titanic y 1910s mm. ripoff styles. Yeah. That's just another thing that's superficial about it. Mm. Also, I was never clear on what age Kylie Minogue's character was supposed to be. Mm. Yeah. Partly because Kylie herself looks like some sort of ageless fey being. Yes, as if she, she should be like tending the forests of Lothlorien or something, rather than like doing whatever it is she does these days. But she acts quite young mm-hmm. in some of the scenes. And like I don't think there's anything wrong with her acting. Like if anything, Kylie Minogue's performance is probably the least of the issues yeah. about yeah. this episode oh, yeah, she's like, fine yeah, like yeah. she does a good job with like the material and stuff mm-hmm. but she seems quite like have a youthful energy when she's doing yeah, the bit yeah. which is nice where she's on earth and is getting excited about yeah. stuff which is actually the thing in this episode that I like the most by some margin but then she's also clearly although like again ageless you can't it's, she's also clearly not like super young mm. and so it's a bit weird so you kind of I know she's not human but like I wasn't sure what we were supposed to think about what her life because mm. how, how old you are can depend a lot about like what your life might have been like back on your home planet because there's the other older guy who's like scammed his way into saying that he's like an earth scholar and he's like older than she is obviously mm. but like he's got a history and stuff but there's never really any sense of like what her mm. if she has like a past in the way that like a anyone more than sort of 25 probably has like a work history <laughs> yeah yeah she's just um she's she's just quite a two-dimensional character honestly but she's called astrid which is an anagram of tardis and that's extremely significant because um mm. because because she's important because yeah in the same way that Torchwood being an anagram yeah, yeah. of Doctor Who is extremely yeah. significant. Mm. <laughs> I should clarify, to be fair, like when I say when I complain about stunt casting, I'm not necessarily saying that, that I don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not that at all. It's more the the motivation behind it. Like I mm-hmm. think Catherine Tate and Kylie Minogue are like fine. Like I don't really have an issue with them. I think the I think the main issue here is that like I think that they I think this really is it is just a stunt because although as mm. I said. Her acting is, like, fine and everything. But I don't think that they really put much thought into the character because they were like, oh, and we'll have Kylie and she'll be doing this. Hmm. I have to say, normally I'm wearing my Kylie Minogue for Specsavers branded glasses. <laughs> oh, yeah. They actually broke yesterday, possibly in anticipation <laughs> of, like, the laying into her oeuvre yeah, yeah. that was to come. Yeah. Uh, if only we could, like, cut to the... The, the bent frame of your glasses like the broken gold star at the end of Earth Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the end oh, credits dear. of Voyage of the Damned should be. <laughs> the, other, the other thing I should probably clarify as well, actually, I know I keep attacking it as a rip-off of the Poseidon adventure. I'm not necessarily against Doctor Who riffing off existing programmes. Mm. Uh, riffing, not ripping. Um, and I'm not, I'm not against... I'm not against them doing you know, pastiches mm. or like in the Christmas Carol building on traditional Christmas stories. Mm. It's just that I don't think this is well executed and I think this isn't doing anything new with the material. It's just putting it into a different context and that's it. Mm. Yeah, because um, it is just a rip-off if you don't put a new spin on it and if that's if they don't do that, then it's just like lazy yeah. borrowing. Yeah. I think that also potentially uh, contributes to some of the the structural issues that this episode has. Mm. Uh, I hadn't put 
together the Poseidon Adventure thing before, but I think this explains why there are kind of maybe a couple too many side characters, really, with yeah. with tragic backstories that we don't really get much of. Mm. Because when you're compressing like a two-hour film into an hour-long Christmas special, yeah. you're going to lose a lot of that. and mm. uh, You're going to lose a lot of that character stuff. And so it does feel like the episode has already kind of tried to cram too many people in anyway. And I, I couldn't quite put my finger on why, but I think that must be it, to be perfectly honest. Well, I think it's because if, if you're trying to do a disaster movie and, they're tr- and you're trying to you know, replicate that film, you need... This is a horrible way to say it, but you need people who are expendable, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Like, you need people to die. And because he's almost like... A lot of the deaths are virtually identical, like, in mm. the way that they come about. Um, he just replaces water with fire you get that weird thing where like what should happen with a with with something of this kind if it like you say if it was a slow burn going over a two-hour period is you should get to know the characters over a while and then you feel something you know when they eventually demise Mm. and it happens over a slow period each person gets picked off slowly until there's only very few left Mm. but what happens with this is the characters are brought together, the disaster happens, and then there's one bit, I think it's sort of in the middle, where lots of characters die all they, at once. They just they <laughs> like, have the, <laughs> the worst room imaginable, where three people just die in a space of about five minutes. Yeah, mm. yeah. And that, you're right, that structurally just doesn't work. Yeah. at all. And there's Banacafalata, mm. which is a weird character, because mm. there's the bit where the doctor's like, can I just call you, like, some shortened version of your name? And then he's like, no. But we never really get to find out. He's a cyborg. Yeah. Mm. And Astrid says that people can marry cyborgs on her home planet, but obviously she doesn't want to marry him, because, like, that would be weird. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, there's just, like, there's something that I don't like about it that I haven't managed to put my finger on yet. Yeah, no, I... I think I I feel very similarly to you, and I think it's hard to articulate just because the idea of the cyborgs and of what they are mm. is so poorly articulated in itself. Mm. Because then it's like it comes back, but it's come it comes back in the form of the villain, mm. which is really weird, and yeah. it's not at all clear what kind of commentary is going on there. I know Russell D Davies himself said that he said the reason why he brought in the cyborg villain was basically because he thought that Doctor Who needed a villain and and that, that he said that was the major change he made. Because, he, he, you know, to be fair to him, he's completely upfront about the fact that this is the Poseidon adventure. <laughs> like, he has said that's what he got it from. And he said, basically, that what he did was he threw a villain in because he thought it wouldn't be Doctor Who otherwise. Mm. But, mm. again, that just seems totally lazy to me. And, and I don't think you need to be that essentialist about what Doctor Who requires. Like, yeah, it's, you know. yeah, I mean, Max Capricorn is, like, not the most memorable villain in yeah. <laughs> in Doctor Who history anyway. Because I think, apart from anything else, it's like the idea of the, like, aged capitalist who is um, kept alive by machines is kind of... It's, it's a trope. It's a trope that's been done better mm. elsewhere. I mean... And so the example that came to my mind is, for anyone listening who has played Fallout New Vegas, is Mr. House, as played by the late René Aubergeois of Deep Space Nine and many other shows, who is like a 
Immortan so, Joe is as well in in Mad Max Fury Road. Isn't he like an evil capitalist kept alive by machines? Yeah, yeah, true. Just sorry I interrupted you and it was no point in doing it, but I just wanted to say because I knew a thing. No, no, that is a good point. Uh, the reason I was thinking Mr. House is specifically he is like kept alive within a computer and like uh-huh. uh, he's like when spoilers but if, if you if you kind of get to the point of the game where you can actually see what he looks like he's just because he's like 300 years old he is just like an incredibly aged man sat, sat in a vat hooked up to a bunch of computers probably you are musk yeah yeah I, th- I think so <laughs> like he's he's actually based on harrod hughes um uh-huh. among other other people yeah, that was just the example that came to my mind, but it, it's an example of that being done better because Mr. House is a really interesting character and the way, the way in which he interacts with the world around him and the kind of the plans that he has in that game for for how Vegas can recover after the, the nuclear war and all of this kind of thing. Whereas Max Capricorn is a head who is annoyed at his company's shareholders. That's about it. Well, he says, what well, not the motivation something like, he says something about, like, cyborgs being discriminated against, and so that's why he's doing it. But that, that goes back into that, like, a bit like I was saying about the Christmas invasion, that dodgy thing of, like, if someone's oppressed, they then end up becoming an oppressor. Yeah. Oh, boy, um, wait until we get to the next Doctor. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's something that I have a real issue with, you mm. know. And, like, I think it's weird because I think that the... Well, I think the way that you seem to become a cyborg is that some aspect of your body is working suboptimally and therefore you are augmented in the same way that you might have, like, a prosthetic limb or need to use, like, a wheelchair or something. Yeah. So it's basically that, like, if you're a cyborg, you're kind of what it might be like to have a disability in the future. Mm. And so then the fact that the only people that we get who have that attribute in this episode are, like, guy who is funny because he is small mm. and evil villain is, like, not a super sophisticated rendering of what it might mean to be a cyborg at any point. Yeah, which, again, has this whole history of, like, sci-fi literature behind it mm. and of the... The, like the interweaving of machine and human and like obviously the whole field of like post-humanity uh, there's 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 a lot potentially going on here but it's about the most superficial treatment of it mm. imaginable it's funny the way that word keeps coming up about russell t davies right? post-humanity <laughs> no superficial, oh, superficial. <laughs> okay right yeah, i was wondering but yeah yeah Noted no it's post-human <laughs> <laughs> no um i think that like i, th- I think that this is something that is quite common in the line for like lazy portrayals in Doctor Who though, because mm. there's also that guy in the, the the episode of the most recent series with the pating. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, the Saranga conundrum. Yeah. I've just sort of erased that from my memory. There's a guy who's like maybe a clone, but maybe a robot. Oh but yeah. They don't super explain it very well, and I just feel like these are things that are worthy of like whole episodes on their mm. own, really. And there's been a great amount of science fiction literature dedicated to them and yeah well i mean i think even if you think about the ood because Mm. the ood are like a background thing in the impossible planet satan pit Mm. and then they come back in planet of the ood and are properly explored and become like a recurring plot element because of that Mm. i don't love planet of the ood but at least it kind of it does that Mm. Mm. 
It's an interesting reason to bring something back. Yeah. Me, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. But like, yeah, I just feel like it's kind of symptomatic of a lot of what we've been seeing, where there's loads of stuff kind of thrown at, thrown on the table, and then not really dealt with. Mm. And like, also, it's bring back it to one of the things I mentioned before: the like working class couple that everyone's mean to mm. who die just because like. I guess because they're in so much debt, like they're in debt and they're gonna have to pay it off. But instead of like dealing with that and finding a solution for them, we're just gonna have them die. Yeah. One of them apparently just because like, like the husband dies and then yeah. the wife is just like. He dies like it's such so quickly and in such a throwaway fashion that like it took me a few seconds to realize he was dead. Mm. Mm. And also, there's just the constant comments being made about the fact that they're both fat. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like. Oh no, how are we going to get across this wobbly bridge or through this gap with these fat people? And, and it, it's like not always the nasty man that mm, is saying these things. Well, what I think makes it worse is a, a little bit like what we were saying with Donna is that it's not just like the people around them and specifically the the nasty man who is an old Etonian in all but actually having been to Eton. <laughs> it it's the kind of the episode itself. Because, like, it's not just that they're being called fatso or whatever. It's the fact that, like, there's a bit where um, they come into a room that has some food in it. And was it Floon? Yeah, I think it Floon. was Floon. Yeah. Looks at the food and, like, an ecstatic expression comes over her face. And she's like, Morvin, look, food. Because as fat people, that is the reason for our existence. Mm. Half of that line is in the episode. The other half is implied. And, like, yeah, I just feel like... Because when you think about it, there are lots of people that are different sizes in that group because they've got hmm. Anna Cafalata, who is very small. And yeah. that does come into it as well, to be fair, because he can fit through the place that yeah. the rest of them can't. But it's only the, like, size difference between Floon and Morvin and everyone else that keeps getting referenced. Yeah. And, like, there's also the implication... Like, because when Morvin dies, it's because he, like, stands on a ledge and it crumbles away. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, well, if he hadn't been so fat, he might have lived. Sorry. Well, there's also the fact that they're working class. Yeah. And that they are the working class people on that ship. Like, there's there's something dodgy going on there in terms of, like, stereotypes about diet and stuff. Yeah. They live to consume. Mm. And again, as we were saying, if you're going to do an episode of this kind... You have to be exploring people's characters properly, yeah. and they have to be properly developed. And reducing people's character down to their physical attributes, which is what he does with practically every character in this episode, it's it's just lazy writing, and it becomes offensive. You know. Also, I just remembered because I think after we after we watched it, we were talking about this, and Kieran, you said something like what was the actual character difference between Morvin and Floon? Yes. And I was like, well, because I thought about it, but Floon enters that competition based on, like, like pop culture Mm. trivia, Mm. fat, stupid trivia, as it is referred to in another episode. Lest we forget. Um, So she is feckless and prone to irrationality because she is the girl one. So Mm. that's the difference, other than that they're basically the same character. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) It's hard to gainsay that in any way. I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. 
I'm 903 years old, and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? Besides all of that, <laughs> there's more. Because I think this is maybe the worst episode in the whole Tenant era for grandstanding. Oh, God, don't you get me started. Like, it, oh. ha- it has, I think, the, like, tentpole moment of, I'm the Doctor, I'm 900 years old, I'm a Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey, and I'm going to save all of you. With Murray Gold, like... Attacking all of the instruments simultaneously in the background. Like, I mean, I love the fact that almost the first thing that happens when the Tenth Doctor appears in Day of the Doctor is that immediately the episode takes the piss out of exactly that tendency. Because he makes almost that speech to a squirrel that he thinks is a Zygon and then realizes it's actually a squirrel. Because this is something that happens a few times. And I think this is probably the worst. Yeah. Especially when it's paired with maybe the single worst image of at least the Tenant era, which is the Doctor being lifted on high, ascending with the angels. I've written in my notes, and I'll quote this verbatim, the Doctor being elevated by angels. Is this the worst thing ever? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It might be. Uh, And it's especially egregious because, like... It's a moment of, of kind of, of triumph of the, the Doctor as Saviour. He hasn't done anything. Mm. And in that moment, it's Astrid who has just, like, sacrificed herself and um, killed uh, Max. And so it's not even... I don't think that moment ever could be earned. But, like, there isn't even really an attempt to earn it. It also frustrates me because, like, there's no reason for them to be angels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, apart from because it's Christmas, but apparently they've been there the whole time on the ship. So they just they just have angels because, like, that's a thing. I mean, I do really like your theory that because they're called the host, they are anti-transubstantiation propaganda. Murderous oh, host. Oh, I've forgotten about that. Yes, yes. The host, the host will kill you if you put too much faith in the host and not in your <laughs> salvation through uh, being elect. Yeah, not in your salvation through faith and... Through being elect and yeah, I don't seriously believe this. It's just that like I'm I always do I'm always eternally torn between being like a medieval relic lover and a puritan. <laughs> a lot of the religious stuff as well, I guess it it comes out of the 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 source material that Davies is using, because Tennant's character, you know, is basically is kind of becomes the leader, you know, really mm. of this group. Well, I mean, in the Poseidon adventure. That leader is Gene Hackman's oh, character, of course, who, is, yeah. who is like he's a preacher, isn't he? That's, yeah, that's he's a priest. I think he's a uh, Catholic priest. Yeah, yeah, a priest. Yeah, uh, which I know purely because of the uh, the Father Ted episode yeah. where Dougal's in the runaway milk flood and they watch the Poseidon adventure to try and get some ideas <laughs> because Gene Hackman plays a priest. But I think the major difference. You even say mass. <laughs> I guess the major difference is that he, the whole thing of the Poseidon adventure is he basically loses his faith, doesn't he? I and actually it, haven't seen the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, so basically, like, I, I, and this is why it makes it even more bizarre what you were saying about the thing with Astrid, because I think, I can't remember for certain, because it's a long time since I've seen it, but I think the character that I would say is closest to Kylie Minogue's character is a young woman who dies near the end of the film, and that's basically the point where Gene Hackman is, like, ranting at God and, like, right. saying there is no Do God and all this kind of thing. 
Not, no, I don't think so. Oh, it's a long time since I've seen it. Because it's got to be snogging, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's like a, a, it's how they, it's what they do on her home planet. Oh, snogging. yeah, something like that. But I think, I just think that whole parallel makes it even worse. Because it's like, the reaction of the Doctor should be, oh god, this woman's died, mm. and, you know, save us all. Which, there is some of that to an yeah. extent. But like you say, it's offset by this... Mm. Ooh, he's just rising up, you know. Also, yeah. this spaceship has a worse survival rate than the actual Titanic. Yeah, a lot worse, yeah. Um, they don't have any life pods, mm. or mm. they don't use them. I don't know what the pro- protocol would be. And also, like, it just so happens that all the characters that survive are white men. Yes, which doesn't necessarily like mean anything in itself, but like, it's a bit interesting when you consider how more diverse the starting group was yeah i know that the point at the end is also like oh you can't always pick who Mm. who lives and who dies Mm. but but that's part of that cynicism of the davies era again isn't it it's like oh look the rich old utonian has has got through on and and one guy is okay you know, like he's managed, he's actually managed to, he's got a better life, but it's like a lottery. Mm. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it, it's chance. Like, mm. <laughs> it's, I, incidentally, speaking of that, like, I really like that, you know, at the end, Mr. Copper is like, he's mm. on Earth and he has this credit card with a million pounds on it. Where did he get that money? Yeah. How has, is capital imaginary? Yes. But still, <laughs> what kind of like <laughs> transaction has led to him having all this money? I'm really confused by that. Space bank fraud. Yeah, presumably. But they think it's okay because Earth is a primitive civilization. Mm. That's my guess. They just like made it like rustled up a credit card. With rustled up. A. Uh. And that's just the Tikna. <laughs> 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 um, they they like would have made it so that it looked like it had enough money on it using computer wizardry but it doesn't actually have any it's not from money from yeah. Earth originally so they're just popping a million pounds into the economy from nowhere yeah um that's what it is i think yeah yeah um well, that makes sense. but it's like the kind of it's because they don't like care enough about earth civilization to try and like actually source mm. the money as long as it looks like they have money i guess but that's just my theory for where the credit card came from, and so that was a very long explanation for nothing. But, yay! Another thing that comes from this episode, actually, that I... I, d- I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But it's just something I've noticed about the Davies era, and it comes up in this episode, and it's coming from the Christmas Invasion, and it comes up in the series as well, in the episodes, is Davies' relationship with the monarchy is interesting. I was going to talk about because, this, yeah. Because, because you've got, you've got, so you've got the Titanic heading towards the, the, the Buckingham Palace and that god-awful sequence of someone who clearly isn't the Queen running mm. with the corgis out of the building. You've got, in the Christmas Invasion, the bit where Harry Jones is like, oh, they're on the roof. Mm. Like the royal family are on the roof. Oh um, no! Yeah, yeah. not the, the most valuable <laughs> people in the UK. And then also, there's the tooth and claw thing where it's implied that the Queen Victoria's descendants are werewolves. Yes. And they're like, specifically like, ooh, Princess Anne, you know, which is really offensive. Mm. Like, I don't like monarchy, but like, let's not get into personal attacks. 
Like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. It's just... It's, it's just... really strange. And especially because the, the framing of the monarchy, in, in specifically of the Queen here, is so strange. Because, like, there's the bit where um, the Doctor's talking to Wilf. Uh, and Wilf's talking about how, like, oh, the Queen has decided to stay in Buckingham Palace. Our sovereign. And Yeah, and it's... I'd forgotten this bit of Wilf. Yeah. I'd only remembered yeah. him like, later on, <laughs> so I watched it back on. Like, I still love him because it's Bernard Cribbins, but I'm mm. still also like, Wilf. It, it's like... Come on, my boy. <laughs> I can't remember if he actually says it, but certainly the implication is, like, the Queen has decided to stay in Buckingham Palace all by herself. You know, apart from the servants mm. that she needs to maintain her lifestyle. And the corgis. And the corgis. It's a bit like when that guy... Stays in Invasion of the Dinosaur, the politician, but he also has this like chauffeur. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, these people who are like nobly deciding to stay, but mm. also have like an entourage that presumably doesn't have a choice. Yeah, although he is also taking part in the conspiracy too. Yeah. So there's that. And we as have well. no evidence that the Queen arranged any part of these shenanigans. No, but mm, mm. <laughs> she was confident enough to stand on the roof, wasn't she? <laughs> Leading to, I think, the second worst shot of the the second worst image of the um, the tenant era with the queen standing on the roof and waving and saying, oh, "Thank you, doctor." Oh. <laughs> that sounded like Alpha Centauri, but <laughs> you never seen him in the same room, do you? It's it's the fact that like it's that it's that like comedic like over the top queen voice as well. Yeah, it's, it is. It's not even an attempt at like anything like vaguely like subtle or authentic. Mm. It's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's like it's the monarchy as like background detail. Yeah. As it's it's like the Union flags. It's being deployed as like this kind of quintessentially British thing mm. that can be here because it's Christmas and we're celebrating Britishness, I guess. Mm. I guess by this point, Britishness has become quite a big part of the Doctor Who brand. Though. Yeah, like this is this is around the time it's really starting to kick off in America, I suppose. Mm. Uh, well, arguably that's already happened. But. So they're like, let's chuck as much mm. British things in as we can. Mm. Well, I think I said this when we looked at Rose. I can see that in Rose. Yes, I that's true. I definitely see it in the Christmas Invasion as well. Like, there's mm. all there's numerous references to like Britishness and like the tea thing is going on throughout it. And talks oh, about yeah. having a picnic while the world comes to an end, and that's very British. It's mm. um, yeah, yeah. Again, it's the show kind of selling itself internationally. I'd mm. like to point out that I have at least a lot of the time referred to the to the thing as a Union Jack and not a Union flag, even though I know from the Doctor Who episode, The Idiot's Lantern, I think, that it's only supposed to be a Union Jack when it's flown on a ship, but I don't care. (laughs) 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 So I'm going to call it what I call it and... The the crossy thing. That thing that I see outside pubs when the football... Mm -hmm. Well, well, not even when the football, because yeah, that's the other crazy be, thing. Yeah. Yeah. If, do we have anything else to say about Voyage of the Damned? It was bad. It's terrible. It, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, I would have forgiven it a lot if they had even just one time showed someone arranging deck chairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they didn't even do that. Hmm. I mean, my final note is Verity Lambert deserved better. Oh, God, yeah. Because the episode is dedicated to her. I was so 
like sad when I saw that because I was like, yeah, <laughs> why it, this one? <laughs> so so do so many other, so do Kylie Minogue and Russell Tovey and um, Jeffrey Palmer, even though he's been in the show before. Everyone involved, really, but especially the fact that it this is the one dedicated to Verity Lambert really yeah. kind of hurts. Yeah. Anyway. Let's go on to move on to the next doctor. No, I'm uh, I'm just Smith, John Smith. But I've heard all about you, Doctor. Bit of a legend, if I say so myself. Modesty forbids me to agree with you, sir, but yes, yes I am. A legend with certain memories missing. Am I right? How'd you know that? You've forgotten me. Yeah, Jacob, why don't you start us off on this one? This is the pits. We have, reached, we have reached the lowest level of the Christmas specials. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. <laughs> like what I was saying earlier about cynical marketing ploys, mm, yeah. this is the apex of that. An episode that can, well, should only be able to work in the context of David Tennant leaving. Mm. Doesn't even work in that context because, to be quite frank... Like, the title is used to kind of draw people in, but then it doesn't really work with the rest of the episode. I can't stand the way in which the Cybermen are brought into Victorian London, and all of that just, I don't know, it just kind of clashes. Like, there's no there's no attempt to incorporate, as far as I can see it, properly incorporate the alien threat into the time period it's looking at, and mm. use it in an interesting way to... I don't know, examine something about that time period. There's none of that. It's it's again it's just it's just Russell T. Davies writing on automatic as far as I can see. Um I I can't get anything out of it. I think it's dreadful. I think David Morrissey does okay given the awful material he has to deal with. Mm. But yeah, I, I think it's probably one of the worst Christmas specials, if not the worst Christmas special. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think you're right in that the it doesn't even really work in the context of what it was supposed to be. Because I can remember watching this uh, when it first aired, and I don't think I actually thought for a moment that David Morrissey was playing the 11th Doctor. No. Even though, like, he was... His, his casting is very pointed because he was one of the people that, like, rumour had been swirling around in the same way that it did, uh, for instance, with the... the like the Twelfth Doctor with like Nick Marshall and Stuart Hellegiofor and some other people, mm. but like I think it might be because when he appears, he is so obviously playing like someone's idea of what the Doctor might be that it never quite kind of gels. Mm. That said, I don't hate the first half of this episode because actually I think the the mystery around why does this guy think he is the Doctor is like reasonably well explored. The problem is, and the frankly the biggest mystery about this episode, is why that ends at the half halfway mark. Because that seems to be like the animating logic of this whole episode, and then it just stops. Mm-hmm. And we just get in kind of quite a throwaway fashion. Basically one exposition scene of like, oh yeah, there was this guy, uh, his wife died, and he was sad, so he became the doctor. Also, he has a son, by the way. My French son, Frédéric! 
<laughs> the subtitles have his son as Frederic rather than Frederick. Yeah, for some reason they just missed it. The K. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just assumed he was French for the whole. <laughs> Because he doesn't actually speak, so there's nothing to contradict that. He's, it's him, him and his wife aren't, aren't French, but his son is just for some reason. Yeah. Was, he just came out French, and was, then they were like, we accept you. He was born with a French soul. <laughs> yeah, so, we, that was how we got through the last bit of um, yeah. the last bit of this when we are watching it. I'm probably... I don't really have much to add to what Kieran said, because that is kind of my impression as well even though we've not talked about it a huge amount but that's just kind of the way that like i feel about the thing of the two halves as well i'd forgotten the cyber memory even in this one before Oof. we started watching mm. it oh the cyber shades as well <laughs> everything that i remembered was the story with david morrissey's character mm. which again was very surprising when that wrapped up around the halfway mark and i was like oh well what happens now like i guess I th- I feel like I don't understand why they ended up with a story that was so split in that way. I do enjoy I do think the mystery of who Jackson Lake was 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 quite intriguing and it and they could have just gone with that. I think I feel like maybe the problem was they felt they had to have the Cybermen for some reason like they needed the iconic villain. Mm. Also the setting in Victorian London is very lazy. Like it looks good because it's the BBC, yeah. so they can do a good Victorian London thing. Mm. But it's something we've see we see on Doctor Who a lot, like this kind of reflex of going back to Victorian or Victorian-ish times. Mm. But also, it's not really very. The richness of detail in the script is just not there. Yep. There were a number of words that jumped out at me mm. as being like as not seeming quite in the right register. I think one of them was bonkers. Mm. And then but there's a couple of others as well where I was like I would have thought they at least would have checked stuff like that. I don't know if I can't say for certain whether those were mm. Victorian usages or not, but I think the fact that they don't that I'm not sure and that it seemed jarring is kind of a bit of a issue in itself. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like also the whole of the the second half of the plot seeing as that's a thing that happened. Seems to have a really weird understanding of workhouses and orphanages and how those systems might operate. Yeah. Because Miss Hartigan, who is like the human villain, she, the Cybermen need the children to be a workforce yeah. to make their big Cyber King machine. But Miss Hartigan works in or possibly runs a workhouse. So if they needed a workforce, she could have just got the people from the workhouse, which might have included children anyway, and put them in, rather than sourcing children from maybe orphanages. And I just don't understand. I get that it had to be children so that um, <laughs> Frederic could be discovered. <laughs> but Well, it's also because it's fitting in with the like popular image of Victorian times, mm. which is child labour and high collars and people being repressed but i guess that's the thing isn't it it's like even though they're trying to use that element i guess in a kind of half-hearted attempt to incorporate the alien element with with the historical period it just feels like it's tacked on like they're not there's no attempt to use the alien threat to explore that properly Mm. um 
Yeah, it's very odd. And I mean, as a contrast to, say, um, Dr. Dances and the Empty Child, at the end of that, there's a quick line that explains what will happen to Nancy and mm. um, her son, which is that they'll go and live, that Dr. Constantine will help them. But that makes sense with like everything we've established. In this, the explanation for what happens to all the children is just Rosita saying something like, take them to St. Stephen's. Whatever that is. But we don't know what that is. We don't know for sure they're going to be better off anywhere this else. It's one of the workhouses. Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, probably. Yeah. Maybe it's it, run by St. Stephen. I mean, maybe. <laughs> like, any all, all guesses are valid because there's not any... There's nothing set up even a little bit for what's going to happen to them. And so it's just like, oh, well, I guess Frederic is fine because <laughs> um, he's got Rosita to be his nursemaid. Mm. So that's mm. nice. It's just, it's very, very messy. Mm. And I feel like, like I was saying, I feel like this is Russell T. Davies writing an automatic. And so I guess, I don't know, maybe he kind of thinks this, this is like an acceptable level of quality or like it's passable. I don't think it's passable. I think what is passable in the Russell T. Davies era is quite frankly appalling. Um, and the quality needs to be significantly higher, you know, it's just ridiculous. Like, stuff like The Empty Child, stuff like Heaven Sent, is the bar that we should be setting, not this kind of thing. <laughs> it's very, like, um, it's a very low standard for a historical episode yeah. in, yeah. in yeah, terms yeah. of getting a sense of time and place, mm. the reason for it being in that time or place because there's not really any reason for the setting no um i mean i guess it's kind of it is to be fair it is kind of fun to see jackson's like take on what the doctor would be if he was a victorian man with no technology that's kind of a fun little experiment because he's got the screwdriver and the balloon it's kind of like steampunky and yeah it's kind of nice but like i feel like also this is something that i was meaning to ask jacob what is your sense of what Miss Hartigan's motivations were for her turn to villainy. Well, I'm not going to lie, I was struggling to pay attention to the episode, so I'm not sure. Um, I don't know, like, to me there seemed to be a whole, like, dodgy gender narrative about, like, she was a woman in the Victorian period who kind of been treated poorly or oppressed, Mm. and therefore I want power in some way. I don't know. That was the sense that I got. I don't know if she makes any kind of explicit statement because she, I was struggling to watch it. She does make statements to that effect. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have? Yeah. So there's one thing where she says about men specifically. She says, "Yet another man come to assert himself against me in the night," mm. um, which I think is said to the doctor when he comes to like try and take yeah. control of what she's doing. Mm. So that's kind of that seems to be pretty clearly implying like some kind of sexual assault. Yeah. So that's kind of like dodgy for people who go through these kinds of traumas are therefore going to want to inflict mm. suffering on other people. There's the thing where she says how she doesn't like working in the workhouse mm. because she has to work with poor people. So that's another potential thing that might be the same. Like it's not they're not mutually exclusive as motivations. Mm. And then there's also. Oh, just another comment that she makes that I didn't like was when um, Rosita says something to her and she says, I don't expect he paid you to talk. 
Oh which yeah. Which I didn't like because if that is if it is supposed to be a gender thing, then it's clearly just manifesting as like blatant self interest. It's mm. not like any kind of mm. so it's like something bad happens to you, you will want personal revenge. Yeah, and also I think as well, as well as all of that, the other problem I have is just that it's it's just not really articulated at all. Mm. Like, I mean, the the fact that we're trying to construct this partial narrative through stray comments she makes, mm. it means that there seems to be some kind of morality tale going on here with her, like, getting the Cybermen to possess slash kill all of the the rich lads but the thing is we find out nothing about them Mm. other than the fact that she doesn't like them and she's sort of bitter because they've one of them pervs on her Mm. she points out that one of them does that yeah there's a thing about like uh, and one of them solicits sex because she's like I've seen you in such a location or something. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, we don't really know anything about them as people. They're yeah. friends with the dead guy. And they're like, they think it's unseemly to have a woman at the graveside because women never die well, also or like, are involved with death. <laughs> they talk about her dress, don't they, specifically? And that's yeah. dodgy as well. It's like the whole, like, like, like in Of Mice and Men, like the Curly's wife thing. Like, oh, she's wearing red, so she mm. must be dangerous. Like... It's just dreadful. It's just she also <laughs> has the thing that um, that you've picked up on, actually, that, like, she's like, oh, none of you have ever thought to ask my first name, have you? And, like, That's... no, they wouldn't, really. In that... Victoria, they yeah, just wouldn't. It's not really a thing, like, people would just generally more often refer to people as Mr. or Mrs. Yeah. such and such. Mm. Unless you, like, knew someone reasonably well or had a reason to kind of need to know their first name, like, it's... Perfect. It would be perfectly like legitimate to just know someone by their their surname, really. It'd be kind of ruder in a way if they'd gone out of their way to find out what her first name was. If they only know her in this kind yeah. of professional context through, well, through charity work, I guess. But like, mm. I guess maybe that's something about like hypocritical people thinking that they're doing good works for society when actually they're not and she's taking revenge on them but then it's like it's just i think it's the whole the whole thing is that it's weird because the only sense that we really get of her motivation in any concrete way is like mm. as people have hurt her in some way mm. yeah therefore she's going to take vastly disproportionate retribution against yeah. everyone and not just those specific people mm. and there's a narrative isn't there of like her being extremely capable and intelligent, but because of the time that she lives in, she's not allowed to kind of bring that to fruition. Because, mm. like, the doctor makes some comment, doesn't he, about having, like, a brilliant mind or something Yeah, like that. but even that um, comes across really patronising. Oh, it does, somehow. yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah, like, oh, it's you're more special than anyone yeah. else who might be in this situation, because yeah. yeah. your yeah, yeah, mind yeah. is so brilliant, therefore you shouldn't mm. die. If you're a dum dum, then I mm. would not mind. Yeah. But she's mean, and well, it's also a class thing as well, isn't it? Again, because it's like Rosita's clearly intelligent. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it's like no, it's the woman who's like well dressed and all we the rest of it. We don't even know, know what her class is, though. Is the thing because no. it could also be read as like a working yeah, class true. taking revenge on like the wealthier people. Mm. I mean, I don't think someone working class would 
dressed like that in that time period. But, but the thing is, wrong. she's changed the way she dresses since she used to work at the workhouse. Uh, that's yeah. True. Okay, yeah. That's so, true. but but I'm get I'm going more from like voice cues to be fair. Mm, but from yeah. what they actually say, yeah. we don't really have a hold on what class yeah, she is because they didn't care to give her a backstory. Yeah. No, yeah. not really. And which, yeah, just ends up making her look kind of bitter without really justifying it. Mm. Mm. And, like, I feel like she's comes across as, like, she's intended to be similar to Mrs. Coulter in the new His Dark mm. Materials in Execution, um, which is done very well, although it is very funny how she basically walks into every room like, what up, everyone, I'm sexy and I'm Mrs. Coulter. Mm. And I think that she's supposed to have a similar kind of villainous attitude, but it just doesn't, like, make any sense or no. hold any real threat and it's just a really confusing addition to an already like yeah ill thought out story i think as well there are weird sort of layers going on because she makes a point of laying on some very thick religious imagery she talks about ascension she talks about a birth at christmas time and she talks about how she's going to spread a word but it won't be the words of a man this time so there's some it's there's some kind of maybe gender critique of organized religion maybe a bit but it, again it's not clear is this like her axe to grind or is are we supposed to be be uh, sympathizing with her and thinking she has a point about this it's kind of weird as well because at the end the way that the doctor kind of defeats her is by making her realize what she's done and so then all of a sudden it's like oh, so did she just not realise what she was doing this whole time when the whole point that she was, like, very capable... At what point does he, like, revert mm. her mind back mm. to? Because I thought she, mm. was, I thought the whole point was that she was acting not under the control yeah. of the Cybermen, but then it turns out that there's some kind of, like, veil that needs to be lifted. Yeah, the, I, the implication seems to be that the veil is kind of the bitterness that she has built up, mm. but that doesn't make sense really because mm. like this episode has to like bend the rules of what cyber conversion is to breaking point anyway with the fact that like now cyber conversion is just you put on a helmet and it it sparks a bit and then you're a cyberman i guess but also if you're miss hartgun you can just kind of resist that you put a helmet on a really big cat <laughs> or whatever those things are yeah yeah that's not at all explained. I do love them, I will say. <laughs> I want to be friends with them, but also I question what their role in the story was or why they even could exist. Their design is just like, it's oh like, my god. It's a gold Cyberman helmet on a rug. <laughs> yeah, basically. I was looking at it and I was just like, and I feel like this about the entire story. I don't know if they were running out of budget, but it feels like they were to me. It's weird because they've Doesn't got some good. huge like set pieces, like the mm. massive Cyber King yeah, yeah. or Cyber Queen mm. going across London. But then, yeah, the what are they even called? Cyber Cyber Shades. Cyber are Shades, yeah. Like the Cyber Shades just don't even look like anything really. Yeah. So there's a weird contrast between stuff that must have took a lot of money to put together, regardless of how good it looks. 
and like other stuff that looks bad like the cyber shades or the bit where they show the children like doing the machine that makes the mm. cyberman go and it just shows the same close-up of some kind of spiky ball swinging <laughs> which i don't know what part of the machine that was but i love that spiky ball it just serves no purpose at all except that it looks threatening mm-hmm. it's like something you'd get in a, a mario game when you go into bowser's castle and there's a spiky ball swinging around that you have to like time your jumps to avoid Bowser's like been doing some interior designing work on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's got a a contract with the Cybermen. <laughs> My French son, baby Bowser. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, as a um, just an offhand point, as you pointed out uh, when we watched it, um, the Cyber King like rises out of the Thames in like eighteen fifty one, I think it is. Oh yeah. So he should really be covered in shit. Yeah, like just literal human feces. Sewage and also corpses. Yes. And whatever else was being thrown into the Thames around that time. Yeah. yeah. Just um, everything, basically. Yeah. Fortunately, he is 30 years too late to, like, disturb the big creature from that lives at the bottom of the Thames in Thin Ice. <laughs> so that's nice. But I'm the Doctor. You became the Doctor. Because the info stamp you picked up was a book about one particular man. The Cybermen's database. Started from the Daleks inside the void, I'd say. But it's everything you could want to know about the Doctor. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Cybermen's, like, archive of the Doctor. Largely because it reminds me of my favourite just completely ludicrous bit in Earthshock. Uh, which is the bit in, I think it's the second episode, where after the Cybermen have made their first appearance, where they're, like, watching some footage of, like, the Tenth Planet and Tomb of the Cybermen and, I think, Revenge of the Cybermen as well. And one Cyberman is explaining to the other, oh, we have met this Doctor before. We met this version of him, and then we met this version of him. Uh, (laughs) And it was not excellent. Which is great, because it's a good couple of minutes of just... This is who we are in the history of the program, in case you've forgotten us. Continuity obsessed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very much the beginning of that, yeah. I think, in Earthshock. But um, yeah, I, I like this better, by the way. Yeah. I think this is less ludicrous, mm. as it is actually serving a purpose. They're just carrying around their USB sticks. Yeah, where they've, got, they've made their like fan cuts for mm. YouTube of like, all ten doctors. Yeah, and like they've got some of their GCSE homework still on there. As well. Yeah, yeah. That's my experience of finding memory sticks. <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't get to see the one uh, which is just clips of the Doctor and Rose set to kiss from a rose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have another really big problem uh, with a single scene from this episode. I seem to have a thing with all of these stories that I just really don't like the endings there's there's something in the ending that really rubs me up the wrong way in this one it is jackson lake's big thing about like the doctor he has saved us all so many times and he has never been thanked oh yeah yeah (laughs) i have two big problems with this number one it's not true yeah the doctor's been thanked loads of times you could do like a supercut of people saying thank you doctor the queen did it in yeah. Voyage of the Damned, for yeah. that matter. But anyway, even leaving that aside, what bothers me is, as a moral statement, I'm a much bigger fan of the Twelfth Doctor's thing 
through running throughout series 10 of like what matters is that you do it without being thanked what matters is what you do without witness without reward mm. i think that's a much more powerful moral statement yeah than like victorian london applauding the doctor as he flies over them in a balloon and again it just it goes right back uh, i mean this is maybe the least overt of the the christ analogies in these uh, although it's not really there so much in runaway bride either but again it's the sense of like the doctor on high over humanity uh while people shout and applaud because he's so wonderful and he has saved them all and it it just really rubs me up the wrong way because it's so counter to my idea of what the Doctor should be, mm. which I've articulated in bits and pieces over the course of the episode so far, I think. But like, for me, so much of the, the point of the Doctor is doing the right thing regardless of, of anything. We, we've had this discussion before and I, uh, I agree that I don't think the Doctor is necessarily like perfectly moral either. Mm. But at the same time, I think... That speech from the Doctor Falls uh, about I do what I do because it's right and because it's kind yeah. is, I think, such a profound moral statement that anything that contradicts it, unfortunately, even if that thing was made 10 years previously, like seven or eight years previously, whatever it is, just slightly rubs me up the wrong way. And again, it's the grandstanding. Once again, we, we come back to this big bugbear of the 10th Doctor. And I'm open to the, the reading that this is kind of seeded throughout the Tenth Doctor era intentionally, that it kind of, it's the thing that is his great flaw and that will be critiqued and will kind of be his, in, I have to say, fairly kind of nebulous ways, kind of be his downfall only in only a few episodes time from this. But I still don't like it. It works in the waters of Mars, I think. It works there as uh, the the great failing of the, of this doctor but when you spent the previous three years applauding this tendency mm. right from the christmas invasion in fact yeah because it's right there in the christmas invasion and like this being the thing that we kind of cheer this doctor on for all of this grandstanding all of these speeches with murray gold going wild in the background it it makes the kind of critique of the waters of mars fall a little bit short i think which is unfortunate because i really like the waters of mars in the same way that like when we come to our season 11 episode while i really like the kind of greed for knowledge thing that goes on in planet of the spiders and i think it works very well in that episode it works oddly in relation to the rest of the third doctor era is the problem i think that works a little better actually in some ways but yeah like as i was saying at the beginning i think these Christmas specials are notable because they express so much of the internal logic of the, the tenant era. And certainly there are defences out there which would argue that the, the critique is seated in there as well. But I think you have to dig quite far to find that mm. critique. Where And I think what really stands out is the pomposity of it all, the grandstanding. Unfortunately, that just really, really rubs me up the wrong way. Oh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that man, that doctor on high, and I know that he has done this deed a thousand times, but not once, no sir, not once, not ever, has he ever been thanked, but no more, for I say to you on this Christmas morn, bravo, sir, bravo!
Uh, shall we move on to our rankings? I'll, um, I'll start. So, uh, at number four this time around, it's Voyage of the Damned. V of the D. Uh, because it's terrible. It's like a, almost a perfect summary of the things I don't like in the Tenant era. Uh, and I've, I've stressed, by the way, the Tenant era, because even though I think some of this stuff is there in Eccleston series, I think it gets ramped up from the Christmas Invasion on, which is partly to do with the Tenth Doctor as a character, and maybe also to do with the show kind of having achieved success moving into its Imperial phase, as it were. But yeah, Voyage of the Damned, really, really don't like it. Um, skip back, like, 40 minutes or so to find out why. <laughs> Number three, by by a hair, I think, is The Next Doctor, which is a story that I kind of talked myself down a little bit on, I think. Uh, it was always going to be at number three, but, like, there's there's a lot wrong with it. It, like, doesn't... There's very little animating logic that you can really point to in that, apart from the meta thing of the from the, from the title on down, uh, which, as I say, doesn't really work anymore anyway, unless you are, like, watching the whole series through without knowing anything about it. The Cybermen don't work. The Jackson Lake story, I think, works, but, like, for some strange reason just doesn't propel the whole episode. And so, yeah. Number two is The Runaway Bride, which I think is fine. It has a lot of dodgy stuff going on, especially in its portrayal of Donna. But I think it's... It's a romp. <laughs> uh, it's like... it's. I think it mostly succeeds at being sort of throwaway Christmassy entertainment. Uh, and even though there are aspects of it that I really don't like, I still find it reasonably enjoyable. And then number one is The Christmas Invasion, which is at the top by virtue of being, like, reasonably decent rather than being toweringly brilliant. But it, it works. It's like... I mean, it's tempting at this point to suggest that it works because the Tenth Doctor isn't in it for, like, 40 minutes, but that would be a bit unkind and not really true. Uh, because I, I think even the bits that he's in do work very well, and work well uh, in large part because of him and because of Tennant's portrayal. Uh, it has its issues, especially around the whole Harriet Jones thing, but I think it is generally pretty decent. So, Beth? Uh, yeah, so for me, I've got at the bottom is Voyage of the Damned. Again, very unsurprising. It sucks. I can't really see a way that with the concept as is, this would have been salvageable. And I don't like it. At number three, I also have the next Doctor. I do think that the I think that the Jackson Lake story could potentially have been an interesting hook for like the whole episode if they'd gone with that and mm. tried to think of something that fitted with that rather than just arbitrarily adding Cybermen. But the second half of it really is as bad as. Voyage of the Damned, so it's only the first half that I think kind of elevates it. At number two, I have, again, similarities, uh, Runaway Bride. I did enjoy re-watching it. I wouldn't necessarily, like, turn to it all the time, but it was a fun one to go back to, uh, despite the criticisms that I've had. And I do like Donna, so that might be, like, part of the reason why it came in so high. And then again, number one, Christmas Invasion. I think there's some nice ideas there. I think I'd probably like it more if it wasn't for the fact that I know that those ideas get recycled less effectively later on. But it's as good as 
or maybe slightly better than the average level of a Doctor Who episode, which I think for a Christmas one mm. is really that's the heights. That's the that's the dream. <laughs> now the difficulty with this is that I can't stand most of these episodes. So basically, all the ones below number one are all nearly as bad as each other in my opinion. Three and four you can interchange. Uh, like I'll change them at the drop of the hat and they're both as bad as each other so number four the next doctor it's just awful cynical marketing which means that it I mean it didn't work at the time it certainly doesn't work now yeah I mean it's everything that I said about it really uh, earlier number three Voyage of the Damned although I'd happily put it at joint fourth again it's just uh dull reworking of a disaster movie uh, and is not done in any way that's innovative or interesting. Number two, Runaway Bride, slightly better than the other two, mm. but it's still awful. Number one, The Christmas Invasion, because it's the only one of these four episodes that's actually halfway decent. Right. And that's hey. done. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, we're mostly in accord there, I think. There's... A, a definite hierarchy going on there and it's it is notable that like they get worse as they go on basically uh, it'll be interesting because we are kind of tentatively planning to do the smith christmas episodes and then the capaldi ones to see if that logic holds true for those as well i actually have a an instinct that it might to some extent um because i think actually in all three cases their first christmas episode is the one that i like best but we shall see. To clarify, we're doing those like next Christmas or yes. Christmas after. Not so. like now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for listening. What you can look out for next from us is our look at season 11. It should be coming your way hopefully fairly soon after the uh, festive period. Until then, um, ho, ho, ho. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, I thought through this outro. Uh, I've been Kieran. I've been Bethan. I've been Jacob. And thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs>